I've got a couple of questions, and really, uh, it is there are two questions dealing with the same issue, but from two different sides. So one way I could ask a question, how far would you go to restore a broken relationship? In fact, for many of you, maybe that's not even a theoretical question. Even saying that, some of you may bring to mind uh, a, a relationship in the past and you have direct experience. We could ask that, though, from the other side. What would it take? What would someone else have to do for you to finally say, enough is enough? This relationship is over. Now, now to talk about that, to talk about the potential in some kind of brokenness in a relationship, not, not just what might be, say, your everyday kinds of disagreements, or even the kind that would say, well, let's just agree to disagree, Th- those kinds of, of maybe differences between people as they relate to one another. I mean, we're, we're talking the deep-seated kind of hurt. We're, we're talking about the marriage relationship that suffers through perhaps adultery or forms of abuse. We talk about the relationships, maybe not a marriage, but maybe between friends that that suffers through lying or deceit or betrayal in some way. Sometimes it might be the relationship from parents to, in particular, a, a grown child. Maybe that child taking advantage of them again and again and again. And eventually you say, enough is enough. Sometimes it might even happen from the other direction. Perhaps a grown child has something less than ideal parents and after a period of time will say, no, enough is enough. How far would you be willing to go to restore a broken relationship And how far does somebody else have to go before you would say, the relationship is over? Now, it's one thing to ask that question when we're talking about human relationships, but my guess is all of us have wondered that question not just among our earthly relationships, but perhaps we've wondered that in relation to God Himself. Maybe at some time or another we've wondered, what would it take for God to finally have enough, what, what, what kind of actions, what kind of rebellion, what kind of sin, what kind of disobedience, what would it take before God were to finally say to somebody, enough is enough, I am done with you. Now, I think there's one picture of God out there. My guess is not by the people in this room. But there is one picture of God out there that would suggest God is largely this kind of grumpy old man in the sky who's really looking to just zap some folk, right, when they get out of line. In other words, his his favorite pastime is fire and brimstone kind of stuff. And so what he's doing is he's, he's kind of a capricious and mean and evil sort of kind of God. Some have this picture of him, oddly enough. That he's just kind of up there doing his thing, you know, bringing judgment upon those who get out of line. 
Again, I don't think there are folks in here who really have that kind of view of God, but for those, those folks, they'd say, well, God has no patience for it. And in fact, if I were to ask a lot of believers in the pews, those who would say they know God's not like that, if I were to ask you, what do you think is the primary picture of God when it comes to the picture painted for us in the prophets? My guess is a lot of folks would say, if I were to say, tell me one word, one word that describes God in the prophets, there would probably be a lot of folks who would say, well, if I had to pick one word, judgment. It's interesting. Tonight we turn our attention to the first of twelve minor prophets, the prophet Hosea. And in some regard, Hosea helps us through that question, what, what would it take? And quite frankly, Hosea lays out a picture for God that I don't think we necessarily expect to see. Meaning, Hosea lays out for us a picture of a God who is willing, though he is going to judge, a God who is willing to forgive, a God who has enduring, profound covenant love for his own. I mean, really, if you were going to ask, how far do you have to go, who could do so much that God would say enough, look no further than the history of Israel? And undoubtedly, you'd be wondering, all right, well, if anybody's going to do enough, it's going to be the people who promised to be His people, He would be their God. And we might would very well expect a prophet like Hosea to be nothing but fire and brimstone judgment. But we find something else. Though there is language of discipline, there is language of judgment, undoubtedly. In fact, there's some really vivid and striking images of judgment. Really, the overarching theme of the book of Hosea is God's covenant love. His faithfulness to to a radically unfaithful people. That God is willing to, to use kind of this language, is willing to go to great lengths in in order to bring rebellious, broken people back into fellowship with Him. Though God is not going to be made a fool of, God is not going to be taken advantage of, but God is also a God of great love who is willing to restore even the most broken of people. And so, We kick off then our series in the Minor Prophets formally. We've taken a couple of weeks uh, up to this point. There have only been two two sermons so far in this series doing some introductory stuff. We talked about the office of prophet and all that goes with the office of prophet in the Old Testament. And we kind of did some background uh, foundational stuff in in how we look at the Minor Prophets themselves. And so tonight we turn our attention to the first of the twelve. Recognizing the Hebrew canon refers to them that way as the book of the twelve. They don't separate them out, though they are in the same order that we have them in our English versions. And though, though the, the nation of Israel had engaged in almost unimaginable forms of wickedness, uh, God is still a God who promises His faithful love to His, to his people. So, what we're going to do is we work our way through each of these prophets. This first one will kind of give you the form. 
We're going to follow the same kind of form. We're going to kind of, what we'll do is we'll look at some of the background to the prophet, make sure we understand his setting, where he comes from. We'll take a look then at the content of the book, main themes, and then we'll bring it to bear on our lives. We'll ask application, because these 12 prophets are just as much God-breathed, inspired, and useful in doctrine and correction and training in righteousness. So, what in the world does a book written probably around 725 B.C., my guess is you don't read a whole lot of 725 B.C. works. I could be wrong, by the way. That may be your wheelhouse, all right? You may have stacks of them on your dresser or on your nightstand at home. But my guess is we're not reading a lot of stuff that is nearly 2,800 years old, right? So, what what could that possibly have to do with us? in eastern North Carolina, right? In the 21st century. I mean, what could we possibly get from a book like Hosea? All right, so if you want to take notes, uh, you'll notice a lot of your outline. Uh, I I don't leave blanks for. There's a lot of material that I I want to put in your hands. Uh, And so I've given you just a bit more than uh, than maybe what we'd normally get. So we're we're going to look then at some important features of the book in order to understand it. So number one, Our first step in understanding this prophet is to understand Hosea's context. Understand Hosea's context. All right, so we're we're here in Hosea chapter 1, and look at verse 1. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, and and you'll find this format, this formula that shows up in verse 1, shows up in a lot of the prophets. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, I do, I do want to point this out, this phrase in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, that is the prophetic formula. It's critically important to say that the word of the Lord came to Hosea. This means... Hosea is not out there giving his view of things. Hosea is not like a cultural critic or a religious uh, commentator. Hosea is is not a guy who's, you know, decided, well, this is what's wrong with Israel, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to make my case. What we find from Hosea is the word of the Lord. Keep in mind, this is the job description of the prophet. If you were to to form a job description for a prophet, he has one requirement, just one. Tell the people everything God said. That's it, all right? You don't even need a whole page. You can put that on a sticky note. That's all you need. That's what they're doing. So the word of the Lord comes to Hosea. His responsibility is clear. He is to then faithfully pass along the information given to him, unfiltered, unedited, unformatted, straight to the people. Now, beyond that, we also learn that Hosea is the son of Beeri. We all know Beeri, right? No, neither do I. All right? Okay, nobody does. All right, in other words, we don't know who this guy is. I mean, he identifies himself based on his father, Uh, But unfortunately, that's as far as it goes. We really know very little about Hosea. Really, the only thing we know about Hosea 
comes from the larger historical context. Because Hosea goes on to tell us, the, kind of the, the, when he served, the next part of verse 1, he is serving in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. If you remember from a bit of our history lesson we did a couple of weeks ago, after Solomon, Israel splits. You have the northern kingdom made up of ten tribes. All the tribes other than Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin are the, is the southern kingdom, and they go by the name Judah. They would have been the ones that had Jerusalem. The other ten tribes, they, they did not. and they, So they are the northern kingdom. They had their own set of kings. Judah had their own set of kings. If you were to rank Judah and Israel on a sin scale, from like 1 to 10, Israel is a 10. Judah's probably an 8.5 or 9, all right? In other words, they, they still engage in a lot of sin, but they're not quite as bad as their big brother to the north, all right? But nonetheless, uh, this, this gives us a bit more uh, of, of the context. Now, interestingly enough, as, as the notes say, and as you're, you're filling in some blanks, the name Hosea means salvation. And it is the same name. It's just a different spelling. But it is the exact same name of Joshua and Jesus. So it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting. So this, the, these are the same uh, grammatically in Hebrew these are the same names, and they mean salvation, which I think is fitting, because as we will see when we get to it, one of the most profound pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament is found in Hosea. Hosea very much serves as a type of Christ. There's no doubt about it. If you've done any reading or studying in Hosea, in particular these first three chapters, uh, it, it, is, it is a profound and moving depiction uh, of, uh, of Christ. And so we'll, we'll see that. So that, that's, a, that's about, uh, that'd be the, the most that we know about the guy. We know he ministered in between 755 and 710 B.C. It's nearly for 50 years. One of the longest running prophets that we have. He would have been a contemporary, some other guys that, uh, that you may be familiar with. Uh, he would have ministered at the same time as Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. Now, if you are interested to know more about the background, meaning if you want to know what's going on in Israel's history during this rough span of time, you could read, it's there on your notes, you could go back and read 2 Kings 14 through 20. Chapters 14 through 20, and or 2 Chronicles 26 through 32, knowing that those texts are going to be very similar. So this would kind of give you some more. If you want to know a little bit more, I, I, I guess I could have preached through those passages as well, but that would have taken a very long time, all right? So that'll give you a bit of the backdrop. But as I kind of said, I think a few weeks ago, if you want, if you want Israel's history, I can sum it up to you in one word. Bad. So just write that down, all right? In other words, bad. Now, there are a few exceptions. 
Every now and then, there's a guy who pops up who says, I'm going to tear down the high places. I'm going to burn up the altars. Uh, There's a few revivals. There's Hezekiah. There's Josiah. So you've got a few bright spots, but oh man. From from the time, I mean really even starting in Solomon, till we get up into the New Testament, or to the end of the Old for sure, it's a mess. It is a mess. We We have a largely unfaithful group of people. And so, you know, if you're looking at kind of the background here, as Hosea begins his ministry, verse 1 refers to Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam the second, and this is a pretty good time for Israel, politically and economically. They're really quite blessed. They're at peace, and they've got money, they have grain, they have wine. They have prosperity. Life is good in Israel. And Jeroboam reigns for some amount of time. There's just one problem. They are morally and spiritually bankrupt. I don't know if that sounds like any other country you may have heard of. All right, but I mean, but they are, they, so they are morally and they are spiritually bankrupt. Uh, at, at, they, they go through the motions, by the way. Israel goes through the motions of feast days, and we'll see that as we get more into the con- content of Hosea. Uh, they'll, they'll do some of the outward trappings that they were expected to do, by and large. Just like the time of the judges. I mean, they're still kind of doing whatever was right in their own eyes. In fact, just to let you know kind of the, then the nature of things, when Jeroboam dies... The country kind of descends into anarchy. Israel does. So the northern ten tribes kind of descend into anarchy. And, and between Jeroboam's death and the Assyrians coming in, and they're going to decimate Israel. The Assyrians are going to come in, and, and really, they, they'll never recover from it. They have never recovered from it to this day. To this day. What I mean by that is Jews do not know their genealogy, in particular those ten northern tribes, because of this event, because of what what Hosea is going to warn them about here. So Assyria is going to come in and decimate it, but up until that time, those six kings that they had after Jeroboam, four of them executed, uh, killed the guy who came before them. That's how they became king. They killed the other king, right? It was a coup, all right? Four, Four of them, four of the six, that's how they did it. They, they assassinated the king in order to get into their position of power. Now, you, you travel down then south to Judah, and you'll find uh, that things were not much better. You might recognize the name Uzziah. Does that king sound familiar to anybody? If you think of Isaiah's prophecy, do you remember when he sees God high and exalted? Right? Where, where he sees... Then the, the throne and, and the, the creatures with the, with the wings, and they're, they're crying out what? Do you remember? They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. If you go back and read that, Isaiah chapter 6, you'll find it begins by saying, in the year King Uzziah died. Uzziah also was a long-term king. The only problem was he thought he could also be priest. He tried to usurp the position. Uh, God gave him leprosy. Uh, And though I think probably there at the end he kind of came back to the Lord, uh, nonetheless, uh, his his time was anything uh, but uh, but positive. 
Uh, and again, you've got a couple of other kings uh, that are mentioned here. Jotham, um, Jotham, he was an idolater. Uh, Ahaz in, is the one who really introduces the people to Baal worship. Okay, uh, And though Hezekiah, you see some revival under Hezekiah, it is short-lived. All right, so this is a bit of the backdrop. This is uh, what Israel is like at the time of Hosea's prophecy. And it's probably written around 725 B.C. So, you know, he's ministering from 755 to 710. And he's probably writing this around 725. Reason being, I mean, he refers to this particular king, Jeroboam. Uh, We know that Assyria has not yet attacked, and Assyria is going to attack Israel in 722 B.C., seems unlikely that if that had already happened, there wouldn't be some mention of it in Hosea's book. So he's writing about 725. We're, we're not too far from God, in essence, dropping the hammer on Israel. So this, this is his context. By the way, this is going to be the context for a lot of these prophets. This, this, this period of time leading up to what is going to be God's judgment, either his judgment uh, against Israel under Assyria, or his judgment against Judah under Babylon. So this is, this is kind of Hosea's context. All right, let's go on then to number two, and that is Hosea's content. So we'll spend the uh, lion's share of our time as we work our way through Hosea by looking at Hosea's content. Now, we're going to answer two questions because they go together. I mentioned as we kind of introduced ourselves to the minor prophets, one of the things that we need to pay attention to is why the prophets are put in the order that they're put in. Now, you may, you may look at you know, the, the ordering of the Bible and not think much of it, but they're put in certain order. Sometimes it may be an order of longest to shortest, like some of Paul's letters, some cases it is largely chronological, like Genesis through Deuteronomy. Well, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all, all of those largely uh, chronological. Some of them are grouped according to, say, well, what would be content? So we have Psalms and Proverbs. You have wisdom literature. The minor prophets are not put in chronological order. Hosea does not write first. They also don't put it in order of longest to shortest. There's all kinds of variation throughout the 12 prophets. So Hosea is put here first for a reason. And I think it is because of Hosea's theme. Hosea's main theme is just this. Though God's people have engaged in extreme forms of rebellion against God and His covenant, God is faithful to love His people and fulfill His covenant. God will restore even though they have rebelled. Now, here's why I think it's significant, then, that Hosea is the first one. Because up to this point, if you were to just be reading, uh, say, the Bible through historically, and you're to read all of these stories, if you were to go back and read, going back to especially like Judges, reading Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, 
or kind of the summation in all of that in First and Second Chronicles, if you were to be reading through all that material and you're reading about this great God of love and mercy, this God who tenderly loved the nation of Israel, who, who, who reared them, who gave them birth and, and reared them as a child and provided everything for them, the, the Old Testament also describes God as like a vine dresser who planted the plant and tended to the plant and made it produce fruit. And yet, what do these people do but dishonor, disobey, rebel against God? In spite of making promises, yeah, you're our God and we'll keep all of your commandments, they don't do it. And if you're reading through all of this, you're wondering, is God finally going to snuff them out? Is it going to be Noah 2.0 on a smaller scale? All right? Is God going to send a localized flood? Let's just wipe the Middle East clear of them. Maybe God could just start over with the church, right? Maybe that's what should happen. In fact, our, our gut reaction would be to assume, again, that, that what are the prophets going to be telling us? They are going to be laying out these harsh difficult pictures of God's judgment. I think it may shock some of you. By the time we are done with the minor prophets, you would have heard as much about God's love as you would in almost any other book of the Bible. I think it's going to shock you to learn that. God's love God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, all of these show up as themes. And I think they established, when I say they, I mean the Hebrews, I think they knew what they were doing when they put Hosea first among the twelve. It was to establish clearly, when we talk about God, we're not talking about a mean, vengeful, angry God. Yes, God expects obedience, and God will judge sin, but God loves and forgives and is wooing His people back like like a husband would woo his unfaithful wife back to him. Isaiah is really a profound picture of just that. And so it's a fitting way to begin. By the way, it's another way to challenge those folks who will tell you. How many times have you heard it? The God of the Old Testament is an angry, judge, judging, wrathful God. God of the New Testament is God of love and grace and mercy. I like the New Testament God. I don't care for the Old Testament God. This is just another example where you can then ask them this. Specifically, what books of the Old Testament have you read that have given you this picture of the Old Testament God? Don't, don't ask them... Don't ask them, you know, what, what sto- ask them what books of the Bible they've actually read. You'll get deer in headlights, you'll get a lot of stammering and stuttering, because I promise you 99.9 to nearly 100% of them haven't read any of it. They haven't read any of it. Because Hosea, Hosea's going to give us, again, a profound picture here of what, of, what is God's faithful love. In fact, I put this here uh, on your notes, that, that third bullet point, we're kind of skipping over one here, Uh, That third bullet point, because Hosea emphasizes God's love, he has been called the John of the Old Testament. I mean, if you read John's God, what I mean by that is is the Gospel of John. It is the Old Testament equivalent of the Gospel of John. And if you read John's Gospel, you'll find this John is definitely considered the apostle of love. Not only his Gospel, uh, but 1 John. This, This is a major theme. 
Now the center point to the book of Hosea shows up right here in verse 2. So I know I, know I said it's not going to take us forever to get through the book, and you to this point are telling me, I told you so, because none of you believe I can do this, all right? None of you can believe that it's only going to take a few weeks to get through Hosea. You, don't, you just don't believe it, and already you're saying, Pastor, it's 647, you've gotten through one verse, all right? And you've looked ahead. There's 14 chapters, all right? So you're looking forward to rubbing this in my face and telling me I'm wrong, all right? But I promise you this will uh, speed up. But look, at, look now at verse 2, because now, now it lays out What is the driving image for Hosea's message? Remember, the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, and here's what it is. Verse 2, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. Now, I, I don't know what translation you have. The word harlotry could be translated in, ver- in a variety of ways. Uh, one way in particular would be really stark. All right, so if, perhaps it is in the King James this way. It's not a word that necessarily we use, all right, in, in uh, popular everyday uh, company, all right? So to talk about harlotry is to talk about prostitution. It's got. It's to talk about promiscuity. Now, now go ahead and tell you now, there's gonna, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, maybe a bit of this. I mean, it's, it's really a strange command from God. It is a striking way for God to make a point. And what is God telling Hosea? Hosea is going to serve as a living historical illustration. God is going to illustrate in Hosea the relationship he has with Israel. How is he going to do this? Hosea, my first word to you is to go and marry an unfaithful, promiscuous woman. Now, there, there is some controversy on the nature of this. Because some really wonder, why would, why would God, how does God do, you can't even get the question out. How is this even possible, right? Why would God even do this as a thing? That God would then ask Hosea, a man of God, a prophet, how is it that he would then, not just ask, but I mean he's commanding him to go marry an unfaithful woman. Now here's what some would suggest. Some say that what God is telling Hosea to do is to marry a woman who at the time of their marriage is chaste and pure and faithful, who will then become unfaithful. And perhaps, perhaps that is the case. Others have suggested, no, no, she's, she's an unfaithful woman to begin with. No, she's promiscuous, uh, Use the word harlot, all right, because that seems a little softer than some other options you could use that some of the translations use. But when she marries Hosea, she promises to be faithful to him. She's no longer going to engage in that kind of lifestyle. Instead, she is going to be faithful, which, of course, then she's not. And then others have said, no, 
Now what God means here is Hosea needs to go down to the temple that was built, the altar that was built to Baal, that would have been surrounded with prostitutes who would have been used in the worship to Baal, and that, that's where Gomer is, and that's where he needs to go find his wife from among the temple prostitutes. Now, I, you know, I, I don't know that you've got to make a decision. I, in other words, the text itself, the interpretation, application of it uh, doesn't necessarily change based on what position you take. If you're uncomfortable with the idea that God would ask, command Hosea to marry a woman already unfaithful and impure, uh, then, and there will be some who will say this, then, then perhaps that what he is doing, Gomer is a woman who is pure when, she, when they get married, but then she goes off the rails. I, I, I don't know, there's part of me that's inclined to think, no. There's part of me that's inclined to think, no, this woman was unfaithful because it's not like Israel was always faithful. In other words, you know, Israel's first act after being birthed out of Egypt is to do what? Worship a golden calf, right? Number two on the list. Don't do that. And that's what they do before Moses even gets down the mountain. So there's part of me that's inclined to say, no, I, I think Hosea goes into this eyes wide open. God commands him. You are going to marry a woman. This is going to be your lot. You are going to marry a woman who is unfaithful to you. Because that is what Israel is to me. Now, the, the way the story unfolds, though, is profound, and, and we'll, we'll have to get to that next time. I would encourage you, by the way, we've got a little bit of gap here, okay? We have some time because next Sunday night we've got the night of worship. The next Sunday night is Easter Sunday, uh, and so we, we won't have Sunday night. So you've got a couple of weeks. If you have not had a chance to read Hosea, and if you're saying 14 chapters in two weeks is just way too much, well, you bring me your calendar. I'll find time. All right? But, uh, but if you're saying, all right, I just can't do that, then just three. Chapters one through three. Because the, the nature of this story Hollywood's never thought of anything better. Not that that's any standard, but I mean, they've never thought of anything better. This is a moving, profound, dramatic story as Hosea is going to do just this. He is going to marry an unfaithful woman, and he's going to have one child with her. Just to give you a little heads up, he's going to have one child with her. If you notice the next phrase, Verse 3, so he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Notice verse 6. And we'll get to the content of that, by the way, next time. Verse 6, and she conceived and bore a daughter. What's missing from that verse? Him. Right? Go on, go on to the next one. Verse 8, now when she had weaned, Lo, Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Again, what is missing? To him. The first son is Hosea's. The second child, the daughter, somebody else's. The third child, another son, is then somebody else's. Only one of these kids belongs to Hosea. The other children are the result 
of her adultery. Again, Hosea is a book like you've never read before. It's my guess, at least in the Bible, all right? It's, it is striking. This is, this is what God is telling him to do, and, and he knows this. And God's then going to tell him, you're going to name these kids accordingly, so you're going to have to care for the daughter, you're going to care for the son, you're going to care for Gomer. And eventually she's going to turn her back on you. And by the time we get to Hosea chapter 3, Gomer has so indulged her flesh, Gomer has so turned, been turned over to depravity, she's lost everything, she no longer has her lovers that she had before, they have abandoned her, and by the time you get to chapter 3, Gomer is standing naked on an auction block to be sold as a slave. And God says, go buy her back. Again, this this is all God doing this to illustrate not only the nature of Israel's relationship to him, but what is going to be his relationship to her. Yes, there is language of judgment, but there is also language of this profound covenant faithfulness. So Hosea, I think, is going to be a good one. Not to say any of them are bad ones, but you know what I mean. I think we'll be exposed to stuff in the Bible that maybe we are not normally exposed to, all right? And the minor prophets will do this. I'm telling you, if you give yourself to this, the minor prophets, I, I am convinced could end up being some of the favorite books you've ever studied. I know that sounds strange, doesn't it? And then you can be in a crowd, right? You could be at a party, Christmas time, and they're going to talk about, what are your favorite books in the Bible? Well, mine's Obadiah, all right? And so, just see what happens, you know, when you, when you say something like that. Uh, again, I would commend to you a book. Uh, it, uh, somebody's already bought it. Lisa Jackson has bought this book. She, she says, I gave a good recommendation. All right, so... That's good enough. If you don't trust me, trust Lisa, all right? Uh, but I encouraged you last time to consider James Montgomery Boyce's book on the minor prophets. It is readable. It's thorough. I mean, it's, it's well done, uh, but it's not academic. So you're not going to get lost in uh, a, you know, a lot of Hebrew debate, language debate, grammar debate. It's, it's going to synthesize the book, synthesize the theology of the book. I would highly commend it to you if you'd like another reading companion uh, to read alongside, especially to give you something in print uh, that you can turn to and you can reference. So I, I would, I, I, the, the name of it, Lisa, is it just the Minor Prophets? Yeah. Okay, so just the Minor Prophets, James Boyce. Uh, you should be able to find that on Amazon, so I would commend that to you. So next time, we'll then jump in to, to more um, emphatically than the actual content of the book, now that we've uh, warmed up to Hosea and uh, track out what is God's covenant love for His people. All right, let's pray together. Loving God, we do thank You again for the time You've given us tonight. Uh, we, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, we thank You for the ways You have revealed Yourself to us through Your Word. And God, may we give ourselves then to it that we might know You, and that You, then by Your Spirit, would continue to bring this Word to bear on our lives as You use it to to make us like Christ, uh, that we would be effective instruments in Your hands. We thank You for the week that lays out before us. We thank You we've had a day to begin this week, grounded in Your Word and with Your people, forming our minds that we think clearly about who we are and our place in this world. And so, Father, may we now live that out. 
We pray, God, you would use us as a means to your end, that we would be given opportunity to speak of your covenant love, your profound faithfulness, that you are a God who does save and you forgive sins. God, that we would just, again, be faithful instruments. Use us for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.